Welcome to an inspirational Sunday message from Found Church. We hope you will be challenged and encouraged while listening to this message. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our church website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And I want to read through from verses 1 through to 7. So Daniel chapter 1 from verse 1. And it will also be up on the the screens also. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure's house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, shown aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the chief official gave them new, na- gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Amen. Amen. So here we are in the second week of our new series on the Daniel, on the book of Daniel, how to live for God in challenging times. And I don't know about you, but I absolutely love the book of Daniel. It's one of my favourite books in the, the Old Testament. I absolutely love it. The book of Daniel has it all. It has history, it has prophecy, it has politics, prayer, lions, statues, wild animals, a fiery furnace, dreams and visions, a king who thought he was a cow, incredible adventure, amazing escapes, angels, demons, detailed information about ancient history, and amazing prophecies about end times. And I just think about that, what's not to love? What's not to love and all of that? But why study the book of Daniel today? Let me give you three answers to that question as to why we should study it today. Firstly, Daniel's situation parallels our own. See, for most of his life, Daniel lived as part of a believing minority in a majority pagan culture. Sound familiar? From the time that he was a teenager until he died around 90, he served under a series of pagan kings. From his story, we'll be able to draw many useful principles as we attempt to live for Jesus in a world filled with people who do not share our faith. The second reason we should study this book is because Daniel's prophecies may soon be fulfilled. This book is filled with dreams, vision and prophecies about end times. And in the weeks to come we'll discover amazing, amazing correspondence between the words of Daniel and life today in the 21st century. And then thirdly, the third reason why we should study this book is because Daniel's God is our God too. And let me tell you, our God is still on the throne. Our God is still on the throne. And this might be the most important lesson of the whole book, that God is still in charge. He's in charge of nations, families and individuals. He is in charge of the past, the present and the future. He is in charge during the good days and the bad days of happiness and sorrow, of joy and heartache, of great victories and shocking defeats. 
He's in charge when a child is born, and he is in charge when death knocks at your door. Studying this book should increase our confidence in the sovereignty of a God who makes no mistakes. And all of us will benefit from pondering the courage of Daniel and his three friends. How should we live in a society where Christians are outnumbered and often overwhelmed? How should we respond to the rising tide of secularism, crazy ideologies and persecution all around the world? Where is God in the the midst of a pagan culture? How do we proclaim Jesus in a world that doesn't even believe in the concept of truth? Daniel provides a positive model for how to live for God when no one else shares your faith. So the title of my message today is simply this, How the World Seduces the Church, or How the World Tries to Seduce the Church. In order to place this book firmly in our minds, but let me give you a little, some background facts about this book. Daniel lived approximately 400 years after David and 600 years before Jesus. And this book covers the period from 605 BC to about 530 BC. And in the beginning, Daniel is a teenager. He's approximately 15 years old here when it starts. And when the book closes, he is around 90 years old. And during his life, God allowed him to serve under a succession of Babylonian and Persian rulers. From being an imported hostage, he becomes a trusted prime minister and counsellor to some of the mightiest rulers in world history. And when, we open, when the book opens, we find Daniel and his friends being forcibly taken from their homes in Jerusalem and then departed, or sorry, deported to Babylonia. These are there in Babylonia, these godly teens will undergo an enormous cultural transformation as they are trained to work for a pagan king. And there's three main players in these opening verses that we can see in the opening verses that we just read. Firstly, we see Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they represent to us the world system that is hostile to the people of God. And remember that Babylon in the Bible is always a symbol for evil and anti-God paganism. What starts with the Tower of Babel and and Genesis 11 comes to a climax in Revelation 17 and 18 as the entire world system is finally destroyed at the second coming of Jesus. Secondly, the second important players in these opening verses is of course Daniel and his three friends. And they represent the believer, us today in the world, striving to obey God in the midst of much spiritual oppression. And thirdly, the most important person of all, sovereign God, who leaves his children in the world and yet purposes to bring them safely to glory in the end. He never speaks a word, yet he is the one behind the scenes orchestrating events to bring about his desired ends. And as I meditated on this passage, these seven verses, it seemed to be an object lesson on how the world tries to seduce the church. What starts as a frontal assault becomes a very subtle attempt at total assimilation. Let me tell you, nothing has changed. And we still see the same things happening today. See, in the midst of the swirl of circumstances, we will focus eventually on four teenage boys who somehow find the courage to say no to the temptation and yes to God. Solomon told us, he told us in, in the Bible that there's nothing new under the sun. Like nothing's changed. The the enemy still uses the same tactics, the same methods, and he tries to convince us to follow him rather than follow God. 
It's exactly the same. And when I look through these opening verses, I see four things in there that are so relevant to us today, what's happening today in our culture. Firstly, the first thing I see is that the world seeks to destroy our heritage. In verse 1 that we read, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And I find it interesting that this book, the book of Daniel, begins with total humiliating defeat. The very first verse takes us back to 605 BC as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar surround the capital city of Israel. And we know from history that eventually the king of Babylon had his way and overran the city's defences. And from that day onward, the temple, the city and all the things that mattered most, well that all fell into the hands of the pagans. And that led to the first deportation. A second one followed in 597 BC. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians attacked again. But this time, this time they utterly destroyed Solomon's temple, leaving the city in ruins and the walls torn down. Daniel and his friends were then taken to Babylon in the first wave of deportees. Now they're far from home and they're separated from all that they have known in their 15 years of their life. How will they worship God without a temple? How will they worship God without the sacrifices? And all, how will they worship God while living in amongst all of these unbelievers? And we see the same thing happening today. The world makes a frontal assault on the people of God by attempting to separate us from our heritage and removing us from our own past. So the world seeks to destroy our heritage. Secondly, the world seeks to deconstruct our faith. In verse 2 it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he took the articles from the temple, which included various worship objects made from gold and silver, and then he brought them back to Babylon with him. He then placed them in the temple of the chief god of Babylon called Bel or Marduk taking the worship objects was meant to show that Israel suffered a complete and utter defeat and the message was clear the Babylonians were saying hey our God is greater than your God by looting the temple he thought he had defeated the God of Israel but there's much more to this than just pagan boasting many years earlier during a period of spiritual decline the Israelites had brought the symbols of other gods into their temple now God, here in the earth point in time, allows a pagan king to take his treasures into a pagan temple, such as God's righteous judgment on the people of Israel at that time. And no principle is so well established as this in the Bible, that what goes around comes around. Like reaping and sowing, it's clear, it's all over the Bible. The Jews had desecrated their own temple through consorting with idols. Now God allows the pagans to come in and do the exact same thing. From a worldly point of view, it looked as though and it appeared that God was dead. How else to explain the looting of the dwelling place of the one true God? So that raises critical questions. Can we trust a God that is defeated? Can you trust God when all the evidence suggests that he's dead? Will you be faithful even when your world falls apart? Is your God greater than your circumstances? And although the looting of the temple made it seem that God had been defeated and the Babylonians had won, 
The Babylonians have won that battle between the gods. Let me tell you, and let me remind you, all was not lost. All was not lost. So the world seeks to destroy our heritage. The world seeks to deconstruct our faith. And thirdly, the world seeks to reconstruct our values. Verses 3 through 5 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after, the, after they were to enter the king's service. And I think it's helpful when you read this to know that, the, that starting from these verses, starting from verse 3, everything else in the book, in the book of Daniel, is taking place in Babylon. From this point on, Daniel is away from his homeland, and as far as we know, he never ever returned, not even for a visit back to Israel. And I would call these verses Operation Assimilation. It begins with a selection process aimed at the cream of the crop of Jewish teenage boys. The king then assigns them to Aspenaz, his right-hand man, and he makes sure that they get the best education that Babylon can offer. For three years they will be amassed in Babylonian knowledge, culture, history, language and religion. At the end of that time they would then enter into the king's service and be assured of a high-level government position. See, let me tell you, this is very, very clever, and it's also really seductive. Mind control always, always begins with the young. Look what's happening in our schools today. It always begins with the young. Nebuchadnezzar, he calls on his vice president of human resources, Aspenaz, and he gave him a three-step plan for re-educating these sharp, young Jewish teenagers. Step one. They gave them full scholarship to Babylon State University, the very best place to study in the ancient world. When they were there, they would learn science, maths, astrology, commerce and history. And then step two was to offer them free food from the king's buffet. It was all you can eat all the time. I'm sure you can understand this. The best of food, all you can eat all of the time. Even back then, they knew that the way to a young man's heart is always through his stomach. That's when we look at Gregor's accounts, it's quite a lot. Pizza, pizza, pizza. Step three, change their names. We'll see that in verses six to seven in a minute. Talk about a sweet deal that these young guys had in front of them. It was the kind of break most guys would have jumped at. And Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't think of it as an evil thing. He probably thought it was doing these young men an incredible favour. And Aspenaz, well, he was just doing his job at the time. So the world seeks to destroy our heritage. The world seeks to deconstruct our faith. The world seeks to reconstruct our values. And then fourthly, the world seeks to undermine our identity. We see that in verses 6 through 7. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah, Abednego. And it's not really obvious from the English translation, but all these names had special meaning. The Hebrew names all contained references to the God of Israel. And the new Babylon names, well, they all mention the gods of Babylon. Daniel, which means God is my judge, became Belteshazzar, Bel, protect, protect the king. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious, became Shadrach, command of Aku, 
the Sumerian sun god. Mishael, who is like the Lord, became Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah, the Lord is my helper, became Abednego, servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. See, when you look at these names, the original Hebrew names tells us that these four teenage boys must have been raised in godly homes by parents who had raised their children to serve the one true God. And by giving them new names, Aspenaz meant to obliterate their past. This was nothing less than systematic brainwashing happening to these four young guys. See, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want good Jews working for him. He wanted good Babylonians who happened to have a Jewish background. And note that he didn't force them or overtly force them to change their religion. The whole process just made it easy, very easy indeed, to forget their past. They were being weaned away from their past little by little, step by step. Soon they might forget it altogether. Clearly, the goal was for these young men to think and act and speak like the pagans all around them. It might have worked though, but for one important fact. You can always change the outside, but you can't change the heart. You can change the outside, but you can't change the heart. And I think this is where we get as parents to teenagers today, as we worry, and rightly so, about the negative influence on the, on the world around us. In the end, let me remind you, it's our job to plant the seed of God's truth into our children's hearts and then trust God to bring it to the harvest. If we plant the right seeds in there, they might, the, the external might change, but the internal, the heart, will be solid in Jesus. And most of us know Romans 12 verse 2, don't be conformed to the world. But I love the way that J.B. Phillips puts it in his paraphrase of the Bible. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. See, the world will squeeze us and we can never ever avoid that. But we don't have to give in to the pressure. Here then is a Babylonian plan to transform these young men. A new home, isolation, new knowledge, indoctrination, new diet, compromise, new names, confusion. And it's a good plan because evidently it worked for some of the Jewish, Jewish teenagers but we know there was at least four who stood against the tide. And I see so many parallels with our world today in these opening verses in the book of Daniel. Let me remind you the world seeks to destroy our heritage. The world seeks to deconstruct our faith. The world seeks to reconstruct our values. And number four, the world seeks to undermine our identity. And if I finish there, we're walking home with our head down. That's not the end of the story. Number five, but the world will not prevail against the church. Judy's excited. The world will not prevail against the church. See, as we come to the end of our text, if we just took those seven verses in isolation... Things appear hopeless. Here you have four teenagers ready to take on the mightiest man in the world. It would seem like they did not have a chance. But we know. We know they survived with their faith intact. Or there wouldn't be a book of Daniel in the Bible to tell us all about it. How did they do it? They understood that four plus God equals a majority. When you factor God into the equation, suddenly Nebuchadnezzar doesn't look so big after all. And I intentionally passed over a verse and a key phrase in verse 2. But we need to think about that little key phrase. And it's a little phrase that says, the Lord delivered. What happened to Jerusalem was no accident. And I'm sure the headline in the next issue of the Babylonian Sun read, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem, a great victory for us. 
I would say that's totally wrong. Totally wrong. He didn't take Jerusalem. God gave it to him. God gave it to him. And if God had not given it to him, he would never have taken it at all. And this week I ran across a wonderful statement that I've seen. And it seems to fit our text and the strange, difficult days in which we live in. And the phrase is simply this. Christians should be the calmest people on earth. Christians should be the calmest people on earth. We don't need to go through life worrying. Not when our God is on the throne working out his purpose on the earth. The book of Daniel opens with what appears to be a clear triumph of evil over good. Yet God allowed it to happen for his higher purpose. And I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it at the time. And I'm sure the Jews had trouble believing it. But it was true nonetheless. And as I pondered these verses in its larger setting, I asked myself what set apart these four teenagers from all the others? How did they find the strength to survive in that pagan culture? And the answer might be found in the very in the very first verse of the next section, which tells us, and Alison spoke about this last week, that Daniel purposed in his heart not to eat at the king's table. Let me remind you, it all comes down to our heart in the end. Nebuchadnezzar, he could easily control the environment in which they lived, but he couldn't tr- touch their hearts. He couldn't touch their hearts. Their bodies were in Babylonia, Babylonia but their, their, hearts, their hearts were in Jerusalem. They never ever forget, not even for one moment, who they were and where they came from. It's always good when your dad tries to phone you when you're mid-preach. Should be watching church. See, the faith of their childhood was tattooed on their hearts. And the mightiest man in the world, he was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. How will we survive the continual onslaught of the world in our day? The same way, the exact same way that they did, by putting our hearts in the right place. For us, that means even though our bodies are here on earth, our hearts must be continually in heaven. That's where it needs to be. We need to be focused in on heaven. If our hearts are in heaven, then it doesn't matter where we happen to be on earth, because the world can't touch us. The passage teaches us a great deal about a few subjects that I could develop and we could preach a whole host of sermons but I just leave you with a few subjects that even in these seven verses things that are so key the power of a good memory the importance of a godly heritage the value of early training the call to godly courage and we could preach another four messages on them alone see God used the attempted seduction of Daniel and his friends to prepare them for greater work to come and here's yet another example of God's sovereignty at work that we see in the Bible what the Babylonians meant for evil they didn't see it as evil at the time but that's what it was what they, they meant for evil God meant it for good God was orchestrating the whole thing the whole time he put these four young men in, a, in a, a, a real vulnerable spot because he knew their hearts could stand the test he even allowed them to be trained in a pagan school so that they might eventually become leaders in that pagan government but let me remind you as we read through the book of Daniel that God was not defeated he wasn't defeated then and he won't be defeated today despite what we see happening all around us he will not be defeated today and I know it's easy to be overwhelmed in these days when the world presses and that pressure comes on all sides but remember the words of Jesus in John 17 verse 15 when he says my prayer is is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one 
See, God has willed that his children should live in the world and yet be preserved from destruction by the world. He puts us in dangerous places like Babylon and then displays his power on our behalf. God is the one who gave Israel over to Babylon. He uses the world to knock out all of our props so that we will always turn turn back to him. What an important lesson this is to all of us. Israel might have been defeated, but God was not in the slightest defeated. He was not defeated. God wills that his children survive and even thrive in the most difficult circumstances. And this is, this is a part of what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I don't know about you, when I read stuff like that, it gets me excited and it gets me fired up. Like it's just like too often we get a wrong view of this verse and we have a picture in our head and it's almost like we, we see the, the hell's pushing against us and hell is taking ground and hell is coming. But it says the gates of hell. When you go home today, your back gate will still be in the same place it was when you left. Gates don't move. They open and shut. Like the world we win. It gets me excited, it gets me fired up and it gets me ready to spring into action. I don't know about you, but this is what gets me excited. This is what gets me out of my bed in the morning. I'm telling you, I'm ready to ring that mission bell and I'm ready to storm those gates of hell. Who's with me? You're better than the first service. Like... You can get excited from this point forward in our message today. Like, how do we do it though? How do we storm those gates of hell and invade the territory currently under hell's control? But we're not, we, we don't want to just be passive and think the world's a mess and try and hide away. We can march forward. We can take ground. We can help take the victory in the things we see around us. We are not powerless. We are not helpless. Let me give you four things that can help us today. See, when we live like Jesus, the world takes notice. Living like Jesus is so countercultural. When we offer forgiveness, when we offer hope, love, purpose to people, they have no option but to sit, to sit up and take notice. Don't get me started on the Christians that just want to spend the whole time on social media just criticizing and complaining about everything they see happening in the world. Forget that stuff. I want to offer hope and life and purpose and freedom to people, not arguing with other people. Let's not be living a life that's full of religion, but a life that is illuminating our relationship with Jesus. Like people will never be drawn to religion, but they'll always, always, always be drawn to a life that's been transformed by Jesus. Each and every single time. So let's start living like Jesus. Let's get from behind our keyboards and our phones and get out there spreading the love and the hope and the grace and the truth of Jesus. Secondly, when we pray... Heaven springs into action on our behalf. And we've spoken a lot about prayer recently over the last few weeks. And I just want to encourage you, never ever give up praying. Never give up praying. Don't let your testimony ever be that you have not because you didn't ask for it. Like, I meet too many people who, who are battling and struggling through life, are trying to do it on their own strength. And you have you prayed about it? No. God's the one that can change the situation. He can bring that miracle, that healing, that victory in your life. Like I'm telling you, the prayer meetings in this church should be the best meetings ever. Like 
There shouldn't be stuff being boring and dull. There should be places where things happen that you're excited to be here because you're going to encounter Jesus. That situations are going to change. You can walk in here sick and walk out healed. Not because of any we do, but because of what God does in your life. I believe that with all my heart. See, when we share the gospel with people, chains are broken and the blinkers fall off. People everywhere are desperate to hear the life-changing message of Jesus. They just don't know it yet. They're searching everywhere. They're trying everything in life. They have this notion that they somehow need to get cleaned up first before they can come to Jesus. But let me remind you, they can be at the lowest point in their lives. At a place where they've tried hundreds of times to get free on their own. And each and every single time, they've failed and fell over. This, this should be a church where anybody can walk through that door. Regardless of their background, regardless of the condition they're in, they can walk through that door and find a warm welcome. They can find grace, love, forgiveness, truth. That's the kind of church we should be, not judging people when they walk in the door. People, we need to encourage people that all they have to do is cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus to see their chains broken, to see new life come in and freedom restored. But let me tell you, church, we need to tell them, we need to show them and share it with them. Like, evangelism is not posting on social media saying, hey, come to church on Sunday. Like, that could be part of it, but it's getting in there, getting messy and getting alongside people and say, hey, I met this guy called Jesus. This is what he did for me. This is what he could do for you. And then number four, when we serve people, people are set free. Don't take my word for it on this point. When I speak to other pastors, even pastors in this church, Gregor Allison, and, I, and they tell stories about what happens when you serve people in your community. When you speak to the guys from Teen Challenge Connect 2 and they tell us about what happens in people's life. Street pastors, when they get involved in people's lives. It blows my mind what God does. Over and over, over and over again. So let me close and finish today by saying, and the band can come, because I'll get carried away and I'll keep going and going and going. But let me, if you're feeling like hell is winning in your life today, if you're struggling to see how victory can happen in your life, let me encourage you today with a few things. Firstly, I want you to remember that you are not alone. Others will be going through similar things to you, or have went through similar things in the past and came out with victory in their life. And they can support you and encourage you and help you through that situation, regardless of what it is. Secondly, I would encourage you to get in a community, a place where you can get support, where you can encourage each other, where you can pray for each other. And the best place to do that in church is to get into a life group, to be part of a community of people together, loving, supporting, encouraging, equipping each other together. We can come here every single Sunday and walk in and not speak to anybody and then walk back out the door again. Get in a life group. Get that community of people around you. We've been through some real challenging times in our life. And our life group, our community, our people prayed for us, supported us, encouraged us all the way through all these challenges that we faced in life. So I want to appeal to you today. Make sure, firstly, that you're following King Jesus in your life. That's what makes all the difference in your life. That made the difference in the lives of these four young guys. 
when they were taken to Babylon. Their circumstances might have been horrible. They might have been put under all sorts of pressure. Things are no much different today. But they resolved in their heart to keep following God. And that's what made them and gave them the strength to stand up against everything that was happening. And that's what gives me the strength each and every single day. When I turn on the TV, when I look at the internet, I look at social media, I've got two choices. I can either be dismayed and think, man, the world is a mess and be discouraged. Or I can choose the second choice thinking, wow, it's going to be amazing when Jesus restores all of this stuff. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that restoration plan to see God do stuff. So I have that choice in my life. Why? Because I walked through one of the doors one day, messed up, broken, far, far away from Jesus. And Jesus accepted me and said, Stephen, I want to make you a new person, a new creation. I've got a great plan and purpose for you. And he can, if he can do it for me, I tell you, when I meet people who I went to school with and they, they can't believe that I'm a Christian, they're made a pastor. Like, it's not, it's the power of Jesus working in my life. He can do the same for you. He can do the same for you. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Please feel free to contact us through our website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.